Want to take a shower with Mitch? Hey, Siri, play Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. I couldn't find Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon in your music. Ugh, she never works. Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone, it is not one, but two quick interviews. First up, from the We Will Rock You musical, it is a Galileo, better known as actor Trevor Cole. If you haven't had a chance to see the We Will Rock You musical, you must. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, on the other side of that, we have got from the band Theory of a Dead Man, now known as Theory. Currently on tour, it is a drummer, Joey Dandno. New album is Say Nothing. And, uh, well, listen, on that, I'm just going to get right to these interviews. We've got a lot of content. I don't want to add more to it. You, you don't want to overstuff the burrito. So uh, here we are. Without further ado, it is uh, the one, the only, We Will Rock You cast member, Trevor Cole. We are speaking with uh, We Will Rock You's uh, Trevor Cole. Uh, good day, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Good. And uh, bienvenue to Montreal, as they say. Uh, welcome to our, our fair city. Merci. I, beautiful. I love Montreal. I grew up coming here with my family a bunch on our way to Mont-Tremblant to go into ski. So oh. it's, uh, it, it's nice to be back in a professional, professional standpoint this time. <laughs> it is. Now, you're from Toronto, correct? I am. Oh, there you go. So we'll we'll talk uh, we'll talk hockey later. But uh, let us get over here to. <laughs> well, let's, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, it doesn't look good. But let, let's <laughs> let's get into uh, into we will rock you. This, this obviously this great Queen musical. Um, talk to me uh, for you about getting this role and what made it so enticing because there are so many rock bands out there over the years. But none of them really translate to a sort of a Broadway musical kind of presentation. You know, nobody's really going to go see the Sex Pistols live on Broadway. So talk to me about having this this band and this music and bringing it to the stage. Yeah, I think you're bang on. I think Queen's music is so naturally theatrical and Freddie Mercury was so theatrical, too, that it really lends itself to telling a story. And because all of their songs are so different and their sound is so different as well, too, it allows for characters to be created and it, because there's such a specific identity in all of their different songs. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've loved this musical since I first saw it 12 years ago and fell in love with it then. So to be a part of it now, it is just, it's incredibly epic. And we're seeing that every time we perform and our audiences are loving it as well. Thanks to Queen. Yeah, you got to love Queen. Now, the, the, the music of Queen is vocally challenging for somebody who's not up to speed. I mean, Freddie Mercury was sort of apart from others, but you're not doing one show every three days or one show every two weeks. It is on and on and on. It's every sort of day. Talk to me about sort of keeping your vocals uh, clear and, and ready for this because it's got to be somewhat exhausting. You know what? It is. It definitely is. I, I'm very lucky that like I did buy this soundtrack 12 years ago because I think my like foundation of how I learned how to sing was thanks to the We Were Rocky soundtrack and to Queen. So I've uh, always been kind of training myself to be able to sing up in that upper register. But uh, yeah, I, I think that now we've done more than 110 shows, I think. You also learn, uh, yeah, you're doing it like six to eight times a week. You learn how to do shows uh, when you're uh, healthfully, at your vocal best and at like maybe some days when you have a cold or that you're not at your best, you, you find ways to make it work. And 
I I have really found that that vocal challenge has been one of the most inspiring things about doing this too, uh, because it, it makes every show different and it's pushing me as a performer. And I really do think my vocal stamina has improved uh, greatly because of uh, of this music. And uh, yeah, it, regardless of how you do it, I, the the people who want to hear Queen's music, they're going to hear Queen's music and they're going to love it. And uh, that's a really encouraging, encouraging part. It really is. So, all right. So talk to me about yourself a little bit here, because, you know, a lot of people, we grow up and we say, we're going to be rock stars and we're going to go out and be, you know, we're going to tour arenas and eventually stadiums. Is that sort of the fantasy you had as well, that you wanted to go be Trevor the rock star or Trevor the artist you know, or the pop star? <laughs> And, and and you got to Broadway, or were you always like, hey, you know what, Broadway's kind of cool. <laughs> you know what, I I yeah, growing up definitely, I looked up a lot to my older sister who was a, a dancer, but at the time I was also playing soccer and hockey too. But uh, I ended up following her to an arts high school to for the for a, a singing program there, and uh, that was like my that was my introduction to like, hey, this is kind of fun and maybe I could do this. And I was surrounded by all these people who were already working professionally. A lot of people in my school were like on Degrassi and working in theater in Toronto. And I I, I never even kind of thought I was in the same league as them. So I, I think that that humility was probably part of the push too, being very open-minded to going into this, but being like, I don't know how achievable it actually is, but I've never given up. And uh, just last weekend, I got to perform what my actual dream was to was just to be in a professional musical in general in Toronto. But uh, because I fell in love with this show over a decade ago, being in this role, like my actual dream role, performing in Toronto, I had hundreds of people there in Toronto uh, that got to see me living my dream and they're the people who shaped who I am. So it was a really epic weekend uh, after doing the show a hundred times to actually have the all the people who... Uh, who have watched your journey be there was really, really special. So you asking that question is just uh, it's the first time I've been able to talk about that. And it's, yeah, it, it's really quite touching. I can imagine that, that it's got to be. So I'm going to ask you this. I, I was talking to Jim Valance, you know, who wrote all those songs with Brian Adams years ago, and, and he's now writing Pretty Woman yeah. for, for Broadway and did the tour of the whole thing. It, it, was, it was a spectacular experience for myself to sort of stand on a Broadway stage and go, holy, you know, and I was just visiting with Jim but he said that writing for Broadway was the hardest thing he's ever done and he'll never do it again because it's just impossible. How is it for you as a performer? Is it as easy as being on a TV show or as being in a movie or is Broadway its own unique beast and it's just incredibly difficult to be in character and on point all the time? I think that perform live performance, there is, there is a different type of definitely stamina to it but you have to have a, a different type of emotional, uh, I guess, maturity in, in able right. to be able to do it for so long. You need to uh, you need to dive in every day. You can't have an off day, uh, especially not for this role. You, you you really you can't you can't be bad ever, you know. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's really good because it has pushed me a lot. But uh, you you have to give your whole heart every single time you do it. And uh, then you have to do it again the next night and the next night and the next night. So it's definitely hard. And it's hard because there's also people who are that are critics, too. I think that's probably half the reason that live performance is uh, is difficult because you have audiences there who uh, who love theater and they want to they leave with having their opinion. And the one really good thing about this show, amongst many, but one of the really great things is that Queen is the heart of this show. So regardless of uh, whatever theatrical things 
that people's opinions are in terms of like the theatrical experience, which overall really have been good. People are walking away loving Queen and loving the music, loving the story, and just and and loving us paying homage to a band that has such a huge impact on all these different generations. So it has been really special, but definitely being on stage is a totally different medium than being on TV and film. Well, okay, so let me ask you this, because you're talking about bringing it to the audiences. Queen fans in general, for the most part, are a little bit older these days. They're they're in the 50s and 60s, and some of them are even in their 70s. Uh, I'm assuming they're coming to the shows, but at the same time, I'm assuming all younger audiences are coming as well. Some discovering the music, some just want to see a Broadway play. Talk to me about connecting with the audience and, and you know, gapping those generations and saying, okay, listen, yes, it's an older generation music, but this is a fresh new show. Yeah, well, it, I think that that's, that's true. This show is, uh, because of Bohemian Rhapsody, I think, coming out last year, there was just this resurgence for Queen. And we definitely have all of those age, uh, that span of ages that are coming out, but we, we, I've actually loved, especially you can see the front few rows <laughs> at the end of the show when we sing, we are the champions, we will rock you in Bohemian Rhapsody. We have like the people who love Queen from the beginning to sing along and the people who are as young as like six years old singing along as well. And it does make me emotional. It makes me look back to when I was that young watching this, watching musicals as well too. And, and seeing the impact that these songs are having on you, whether it's nostalgia or whether it's the first time you're ever hearing these songs. And, uh, there's something powerful about that. And there's something powerful about live performance too. I think that we are in a time where people are so connected to uh, social media and to kind of just living in their own lives and experiencing art as an individual, as, a, as opposed to in a, a group setting like theater does when you're sharing a moment with an audience, part of the audience and uh, being able to do like the, one of the original forms of, of uh, entertainment in 2020, uh, I think that that's just really epic in itself. It really is. It really is. And, you know, listen, I love Broadway plays. I've seen a, a bunch in my life, and it's just it's such great entertainment. Uh, where do we go from here for you? Do you want to just sort of do We Will Rock You for the next five, ten years? Are you looking to get into Pretty Woman with Jim Valance? Or is it like, hey, I'm going to go to Hollywood and play people? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I, again, I, this role is, is a very special one for me. So if I could keep playing this role forever, that would be really fun. My voice might tell me otherwise, but <laughs> I would love to keep uh, being a part of it. But I, I, I think that it's going to be nice once this leg of the tour wraps up in a couple weeks to, uh, to embrace it. It's because it's been such a nonstop process. I haven't had the time until really last weekend to be like, wow, this has been such an amazing and monumental experience so i'm going to take it in but you never know what's going to happen i wouldn't have thought five years ago i'd be doing what i'm doing now and i think that it's kind of taught me that anything is possible so i'm going to keep all the doors open and keep my mind excited for what's next yeah i look forward to it and of course the uh, the tour runs for another couple of weeks uh, trevor an absolute absolute pleasure and hopefully hopefully tomorrow i will be out at the uh, show and, and see you i've got to, i've got to talk to your publicist about that but uh as we oh, say, well, we would love that. Yes. So, as we say here, merci. Thank you. It's absolute pleasure, and I'm uh, very much looking forward to the show. Merci, merci. <laughs> Have a good one. Okay. Thank you for having me. You too. Bonsoir. Good day. Have a good day. Bye bye now. Ever wonder what Vince Neil would sound like if he was a black belt in Taekwondo? <laughs> what about what his favorite McDonald's menu item is? <laughs> 
Just hold the pickles. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFun. And I, of course, did see a We Will Rock You in Montreal, and the show was spectacular. It took my daughter, and she even loved it. So it, it uh, what do you call it, bridged the, the generations. It bridged the gap between the generations. Uh, last night in Lac Lemmy, Quebec, I saw Orchestra which is a KISS tribute with an orchestra built around it, doing all kinds of great songs. They did Shandy, they did Every Time I Look at You, A World Without Heroes, uh, Love Gun, Deuce, all, all the big hits as well. If you want to see what that looks like, go to my Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N. Go to my Twitter, at Mitch Lafon. And I posted a bunch of clips, uh, all from February 21st. So uh, depending on when you listen to this, scroll back to February 21st, 2020, and check that out. And uh, let us get right over here to uh, Joey Dandno of the band Theory, formerly known as a Theory of a Dead Man. Their new album is Say Nothing. Well, and that wouldn't really work for an interview if he said nothing. So uh, let's listen to uh, Joey Say something. Here's Joey Dandino. We are speaking with uh, drummer Joey Dandino of the band Theory, known also to fans as a theory of a dead man. As we say in Montreal, Joey, bonjour. How are you? Uh, I am good. I would say hello back in French, but I I don't want to I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> yeah. Well, all you have to do is say hello with a little bit of a French accent. Just go hello, and then you're 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 covered. But. Uh, Oh, hello. Hello. Yeah, I know. So let me let me get started with this. I, I haven't interviewed anybody from Theory since 2005. I'm uh, I'm good friends with Brent Fitz, who was the drummer on that uh, Gasoline album, and we would hang out on the tour bus and we did all kinds of interviews. And then Brent left and went off and did the stuff with Slash. So it's it's nice to finally get back. Uh, talking to the guys in in theory, so it, it's a great sort of reunion for for me and the band. It's it's exciting. Um, let, let's get started on this on this new album, the Say Nothing album, which will be out at the end of the month. Um, talk to me about sort of the the lyrical vision on this one. It, it seems that we're going more in depth, more into, and you know, media reports are our darker side and stuff. But is it just more diving into? the realities of life? Yeah, that's actually exactly right. Uh, when we say dark, we say that because it's it, the reality of all this stuff is dark. And, and, the, and the second thing is, is the fact that a lot of our records before uh, the last, well, before this one coming out and, and the last one, uh, Wake Up Call, were, they had a lot of comical, uh, you know, lyrics, tongue-in-cheek stuff, uh, breakup stuff, relationship, love, hate, all this stuff, um, parties, uh, things like that. So it was, it was just a lot lighter. And now when we, that's why we kind of say it's darker. Um, but you're right. It is about just basically what's really going on, uh, in, in the dark side of the world right now. So, um, we're basically talking about it in a, in an aspect that we're not leaning towards any specific side, we're basically talking uh, in in just making things more, uh, making it more aware for people to be, uh, to be aware of, uh, you know, kind of what's going on. Whether they know about it or not, whether they 
experienced uh, personally some of the issues we talk about. Maybe they know somebody that has gone through it. Uh, things like that. Yeah, so uh, talk to me also a little bit about the sort of the rebranding of the band. You know, it's been theory of a dead man for many years. The last album, uh, Wake Up Call and this one, you're going with sort of just the one name or the one word moniker theory, but not so much just changing the name. You're also sort of changing the sound, or at least that's the way I see it, sort of less guitar driven, less rock driven, more towards, and I know some people consider it a dirty word, but more towards sort of a pop sort of sensibility if you want. Um, talk to me about sort of the both things about rebranding the band name, but also sort of re-changing sort of the, the musical vision. Yeah. So the brand, the rebranding of the name, I mean, came kind of just, just because over time people would say, Oh, so what's, you know, they'd meet us for the first time or somebody didn't know who the, who we were. And, and we would, they, we would say, well, we're theory of a dead man. And they'd say theory of a who theory of a what? And we're like, of a dead man. And then the first thing that would usually come uh, to my attention, and, you know, every, every, every one of us in the band kind of had our, has our own, you know, version of this story. But for me, it, it was basically, they were like, oh, dead man, you guys must be like metal or black metal or something. And I'm like, I started laughing. I'm like, no, uh, it's, it's complete opposite, actually. Uh, we're, I mean, we're, we're rock, but we're not death metal by any means. It's just, I think of the dead man, it would kind of freak people out and, or they just didn't understand it. So that was kind of the first realization that, you know, of a dead man seemed to confuse people. And then the second thing about that was a lot of our current fans would just call us theory anyway. Right. They just be like, Oh, theory, theories yeah. in town or, yep. you know, so we, just I like, did well, why don't we just, why don't we just make it e exactly. So there you go. So why don't we just make it easier on everybody? And just rebrand. Now we're not getting rid of of a dead man. It's people still know us as that. People call us that. Sometimes we'll use the term or the name, but we're rebranding in a sense that we're basically just want. We just kind of want to be called theory, so that it just makes it easy for everybody, including the industry, right? So if because we are leaning, like you said, towards more of a, a pop direction or alternative rock version uh, direction, um, you know, those radio stations that may not want to play us because of that name now don't have that excuse, right? So it, it kind of just, it makes it easy for everything. I fully agree. And uh, listen, I, I remember when Brent uh, Fitz, the, the former drummer, called me and said, hey, I'm joining this band Theory of a Dead Man. I thought, like you're saying... Oh, great. He's joined like a Norwegian black metal band. This is fantastic. Well, I don't know what he's doing. Um, <laughs> but OK, so so let me ask you about that, because the band's been around for, for a lot of years. And do, do you think the name hurt you? I mean, should, should you, instead of playing the, the M. Tellus in Montreal, be playing the Bell Center and somewhere along the line, the name hindered the progress where where you said like radio stations or iHearts or whatever just went Ooh, we can't play anything that's a dead man. That's it, it's not user friendly or soccer mom friendly. Yeah, so that's a that's a it's a loaded question, and yes. the reason why I say that is because everybody has an opinion about about this, and I've heard I've heard it a lot, and um, the uh, the band ourselves have have discussed this as well. So. The question really is, why isn't Theory of a Dead Man bigger than they are? Is that kind of what you're asking? 
Yeah. And in fact, I was going to ask that right after, but okay. Because I was going to, yes, I was going to ask that, but I was also going to ask, what does it take to get to that next level? Like, you know, you look at a Metallica and you look at those bands that are U2s or play stadiums and arenas and bands these days, it's almost as if arena rock doesn't exist. There's some kind of magical ingredient that we just can't get there anymore. And what is sort of, I don't want to say missing from a theory because I don't want to be insulting, but why aren't we at the Bell Center? Where, where, where is that next step? What has hindered that progress? And please don't be insulted by the question. No, I'm actually really not. Um, I was kind of hoping you had an answer for me because <laughs> we've been trying to figure this one out for a while on the, on the basis of the fact that, yeah, you aren't the first person to ask this question. Um, so, okay, let me answer the first part of that question. Uh, does the do you think do I think the name has hindered us uh, be you know to be in the bell center and and whatnot um, honestly, I don't know that the name itself is the was the only little issue of why we aren't bigger i think I think there's more to it because um, I look at bands that are like us in Canada uh that they they aren't playing it either they aren't getting to that level either so no, I don't think it's the name that's hindered us. I think it, it is definitely hindered us in the fact that some of the stations won't play us. But I don't know that that's going to make the difference of us jumping from doing a club to an arena. I think, like you said, um, there's something, there's some kind of weird um, thing going on. And I don't know what it is that's creating, um, uh, I, I think, yeah. a, a total blanket hindrance over rock music to be played in arenas and that people just not enough people want to go see rock bands where they're, they're drawing enough to put us in an arena um the rock scene in canada specifically has changed drastically i think more than even america or the rest of the world i think i think canada is the worst and i mean no offense to the country i'm from canada uh, all four of us are from Canada. Um, so I, I love my home country, don't get me wrong, but the, the change has happened, and, and it's a very different change. Now, the, the, why? I, I, that I don't actually have an answer for. I don't know what happened to the culture in Canada, at least in the rock scene. So I really just don't know why. And you know what? Nobody really knows why. And we've talked to our labels and managers and agents and lawyers and you name it, and nobody can seem to put their finger directly on the problem. Uh, it's a mix of things. So, um, if you have any suggestions, please, please feel free to send them our way. Well, it's funny because I actually had a, a, a long conversation with the guys of Buck Cherry about this. But yeah, there's there's a lot of theories, and and there's a lot of sort of conspiracy theories. For me, I, I think the era of arena rock and stadium rock. I think once the Billy Joels and the U2s and the Madonnas and the Metallicas retire, I don't think that those venues are really going to be accessible to bands anymore. It just seems as though fans are happy to sit in front of YouTube and stream theory playing at the MTELUS and, you know, 2,000 will go to the show and 200,000 will sit in their living room and go, ah, look at that. They're playing a song from Say Nothing. It looks great. I don't need to move. And I think we're just sort of getting into that cocooning kind of thing. And also, you know, one of my friends works at uh, Jeremy White. He works at the Beat in Montreal, which is the hot AC and all that. 
and they literally have meetings where they play songs and if it doesn't make it out of the meeting where you know three people don't vote for it it just doesn't get played and a lot of the rock stuff just never gets played because it just never gets the votes and so it makes it incredibly difficult to to find space on the radio you know what i mean and and also when you listen to a, a Sirius XM for example they do 8 hour blocks and then repeat it three times in the day so there's no midnight slot to to discover a new band. There's no, you know, 4 4 a.m. radio guy playing the underground stuff or the coolest and so it's just just very sanitized and there's just no room that they just don't make room for bands, you know. Unfortunately. I I have to agree with absolutely everything you just said. Uh as coming from the whole YouTube phase, I think that is pretty accurate I've, i'm not sure that i've actually heard anybody mention that but i think you're bang on the money um for that and and uh and you're right the whole radio game is is changed drastically too so well it has we, we battle that as well i think i mean i think about it. I'm, a, I'm a little older and so so you you go back to the 70s and 80s you had your morning shows and you had your drive afternoon drives but then you know from like eight o'clock at night to like three or more in the morning you had the wacky DJ that just played all this other stuff. And you could sit around yeah. and discover Kiss and you could discover Alice Cooper and you could discover whatever, David Bowie or whoever was sort of on the fringe. But now what you're hearing at six o'clock in the morning is being repeated eight hours later and then eight hours later again. So there's no there's no cool slot anymore. There's no cool guy anymore. There's no like, hey man, you've heard the new whatever you too and you've heard the new whatever uh, you know jason mraz but now let's play theory they don't have room for that anymore and and it's 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 devastating to to what it does i mean ultimately what you need to do is just tour and tour and tour and tour and tour until you you drop dead but dropping dead is not a great solution Which is what we do. <laughs> right and dropping dead is not yeah, a great no, solution yeah it, uh, it sucks i i'm i don't want that to happen well okay so <laughs> enjoy living let me but ask it's you. True though, we do. We tour our 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 butts off, and we we get burnt out because of it. We just literally burn out, and we take we have to take half a year off after a record cycle because we're, we're we can barely breathe. Like we're just so tired. Yeah, I I, I, I know it, it's awful. So let me, okay, let me ask you about that then. How how important then is it for you to tour? Because we all know that. Uh, you know, the old days, you you made an album and you toured the album. Now you essentially do the opposite. You you make the tour to sort of get to the album, and and if you're not touring, you're not selling merch, and if you're not selling merch, you're not surviving. So so how important for you is it to get out there and be on the road and and get the songs in the live venues and and also get the merch out the door because it is an essential part of being a touring rock band. Yeah, we. I mean, touring is all we do because that's how you make money. You're right. Uh, now, if you're a songwriter, you know, with, with the way streaming is happening now, um, artists are, are getting paid a little bit more money again, since that 44% increase happened, uh, when that law passed. And I know, I think it's still in, I think it's still being looked at. It's an arbitration or something, but anyway, I, it, we're getting paid our, an extra 44% on our royalties. So as a songwriter, we see a little bit of uh, help with that because streaming is the new radio, I guess. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to tour to, to, to make sure the band is, is happy and um, 
because not everybody in the band is a songwriter. So if the song, if the if there's one guy or two guys, then they get paid, but the other two guys are living in a box. And you're like, well, that's not right. So you got to go out. Um, merch, big thing. It's it's the new. I think we we are in the clothing business. Um, we tour to sell clothes almost at this point. Uh, but you know, unfortunately in order to get to where we are, uh, and continue what we're doing, there is unfortunately a massive amount of people, uh, in the kitchen and they all have their hands out and they all want a piece of that. So at the end of the day, our merch numbers are good, but a lot of times we're not really making we're not making the money we want to make off merch for profit. For us, it's more important about making sure our prices are a bit lower so that we can get more shirts out there, not for our benefit of profit, but for making our band name, you know, right. people walking around with our, our band name on, on their shirt. You know, that's what's really important nowadays. I mean, uh, if we see a little bit of money in the end of it, that's nice, but that's a bonus. Um, just because, like I said, a lot of people have their hands out in our, in our company. So, we have to pay these people. Um, some some work very hard to make this happen for us. Some some work very little hours and make a lot of money off us. But that guess that's just how it goes. So like I said, at the end of the day, what's most important is is making sure people are wearing our stuff and wearing it out. If they wear it, I don't care if they wear it in their house. Uh, but as long as they're wearing it, they're seeing it on 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 themselves. They see it in the mirror. They think of the band, right? So if they, oh, I want to listen to them today. And all of a sudden, they start streaming our stuff, and that's where, you know, it all kind of co- works into into a, a little circle there. And then they go, oh, they, you guys are coming into town. You know what? Maybe I want to go see them because we're just in, on their minds, right? So that's the importance of merch for us. Oh, it, it is, and, and folks don't seem to understand sometimes that it's 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 a walking billboard. And I know, like you know, Slayer got all over the Kardashians for wearing a shirt, but it's like, hey, if if a Kardashian wants to wear a Theory shirt, you know, send them two more. Because, because it's actually good, right? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, unfortunately, they, you know, I mean, it depends who who you're talking to. Some people think that they're the greatest people in the world, and they, they believe everything the Kardashians do and say is right, and some people in the world think that they're a joke. But at the end of the day, they, regardless of how you feel about them, um, they are extremely popular in this, in our culture, at least in America, North America. and if they are wearing something, people are going to see it. So, yep. listen. If Taylor Swift wears a theory shirt, it ain't going to hurt. But, you know, let, let's put it that way. Um, let me ask you this because, well, honestly, I think Taylor Swift is pretty cool. So, if she wants to wear a shirt, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely send her two or three more. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I, I'm not a fan. Of, I'm not a fan of her music, but I, I, I ultimately respect what she does because she's brilliant. I mean, look where she's gotten in such a. Anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about her. Um, well, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you. But, but let me ask you this: you, you just said that a couple of the guys are songwriters, and a couple aren't. And, and this might be maybe too much business oriented, but is is an equal share an equal partnership not the best sort of way to go because I, I i was very heavy in some of the 80s rock band sites and i i would see you know the main songwriter go off and be driving a lamborghini and then the other guy was driving a, a broken down datsun and then you go oh hey the band's broke up because they hate each other it's like well yeah if i'm driving a broken down datsun and the dude next to me has three pools and a 
in a Lamborghini, I'm, I'm going to be a little fucking pissed. Excuse the language, but um, is that something you're aware of in the band? And, and is that something that you you strive to sort of have a, a more 25, 25, 25 kind of share? Well, I can't speak for every band, but the you know I think the smart way of doing that is is okay. So I'm not going to you know go into detail of, of uh, the way we do business in of our course. band, but I'll of I'll course. give you a kind of a, an idea here is that you know I I think the smart way is so that so to give you an idea, um, the four of us are equal share partners of the band. So there's four of us. We're all quarter quarter members. So everything we do on the road, uh, we split four ways. So we all get that cut. But if there is somebody in the band that writes the song, we all agree that that guy, whoever it may be, needs to be compensated for that. Because if he didn't write that song that turned into a hit, would we have had a hit? Probably not. So he needs to be compensated. So that's his bonus, right? He did a good job. He gets the bonus of, of the extra work he did to make that happen. But now because of his extra hard work he did, the rest of us can now go out and tour and split the touring money that, that we all made together to, to go out and perform that, that song or that show or whatever. Right. So I think that's the best way. It keeps everybody happy. Everybody gets paid. And the more work you do, the more, um, bonuses you get. Basically. All right. I'm, I would take you up on that, but we should probably move along. But I just think of a song like Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. And you go, yeah, okay, Joe wrote this and, and Stephen wrote the lyrics. But if you don't hear that dun, dun, you know, by, by Tom Hamilton, is it the same song? So I think when you add the parts, I think you've got – anyway, I think everybody's a songwriter who adds to it. But uh, let me quick get over here to uh, producer Martin. Well, but they can give you – see, like, but here real quick. They can give you – that person who wrote the song can also, on on his own – and on his own decision can give the rest of the band a little bit of royalty because they put in their parts like that. So that's, and I'll give you, to be an example, we actually do that. So whoever writes the song usually will give a little bit of uh, writing credits. It's not going to be a ton. It's they're going to, they're going to get what they incorporated into the song. So like, for example, Aerosmith uh, bass player gave you that, that bass line that is undeniable. He got paid for that. I, I guarantee it. He may not have gotten songwriting credits at 100%, but I certainly believe he would have gotten something for it, and I'm sure his bank account shows it. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, I don't think they're suffering. All right, so let me get in over, over to uh, Martin, and I say Tarif. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but he, he's produced Wake Up Call and, of course, Say Nothing. But he's, of course, worked with Jason Mraz, KT, KT Tunstall, uh, which is the name of the street that I live on, actually. Um, but talk to me about <laughs> using, which I actually live on Tunstall Avenue, uh, but talk to me about working with a producer like Martin who comes from that, you know, Swedish rock, Swedish, you know, European sort of uh, vision of music. And, you know, he's not working with artists that people would necessarily associate with Theory of a Dead Man, you, you know, or Theory. Uh, what does he bring and how important is he to the to the sound? Okay, answer first question. Terefi is how you pronounce it. Now, um, Martin is, yeah, he is definitely a pop producer. He's not a rock, he's certainly not a heavy rock, but he's not really a rock producer. He he decided to work with us because 
to be honest, when we did Wake Up Call, he thought we were we wanted to do a, like another rock record like we've always done, and he's never really done one before. So we decided to we used to use Howard Benton for all our records, and minus the first one, and um, we needed a change. So we went with Martin because we were like, we want to go in a different direction. When we got to London to do the record, he's like, all right, let's make a rock record. And we're like, no, no, no. We want to make like an alternative record. We want to go your direction. That's why we're here. And he's like, oh, so it's kind of, he was almost disappointed. I guess there was a miscommunication. Um, Cause I guess the demos we sent him were a little bit more in the rock world because it was the first time we ever kind of tried to make a, 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 a you know, a direct a sonic, a sonic direction change. So our our demos were still kind of rocky. So he that's kind of what he thought we were going to do. And then we're like, no, we want to, we just, that was how we kind of got our opinions and our direction to you. But now we want to change this and make it your style. So we started working with him and he blew our minds in the sense that the way he makes music is so organic and old school. It was like going back to when we were kids. It was, it was insane. We have been so used to this super straight, strict method of making music and recording music in the studio with Howard Benson that he was just the opposite. He's like, ah, let's just, let's just jam. Let's just jam live in, in the studio, all, all, all of us. And he's a, he's a piano player, bass player, guitar, but he's very musical, very talented. So he would, you know, start playing piano with us and we would just jam these songs just and we would he didn't want us to re- re- to rehearse coming into it nothing he's like i just want you guys to be open minded unrehearsed and let's just sh- let's just see what happens and some days we would work on a song for half an hour and then he go hey you know what i, I want to work on i had this idea last night i want to work on this song now and we just just up and change the entire song and we start a new template and make a new song and we would bounce back and forth for 7 weeks until the record was done so every day somebody had this cool idea of, oh, wow, I didn't think about doing this yesterday, but now that I think, you know, I, we, I, I went home and, and I thought about what we just did in the studio and I come up with this really cool idea. And all of a sudden we try something and some weird happy mistake would happen and then that would be the end result of the song. And we'd go, wow, if we didn't do this, none of these cool ideas would have come up and we would have just had, you know, drums first, guitar second, bass third, vocals fourth, and we're done, right? And none of that happened. And it was just like the craziest thing. So we made this first record with him and we were, we were just literally blown away how exciting it was to go to the studio every day. Cause you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know what we were going to come up with. We had no idea what the song was going to sound like. So it was just incredible excitement every day, but it was terrifying at the same time because it was so different. Right. And, and every, a lot of people aren't good with change. Some people are very bad with change. So when there was a drastic change happening to all four of us at the same time, um, there was nights for me that it was sleepless. I, I would stay up all night thinking about this. Are we doing the right thing? Are we making the right moves? Are we making this new sound? Is it right? Are we, are we even doing it right? Do we know what we're doing? Like, you know, all these thoughts that go through your head. But then there's these exciting thoughts, too, that you're going, wow, this is so crazy. I've never done this before. I don't know. It's, you know so you get to, like, it was like the, the highs and lows all at the same time. So because of this, the success of the first record and the, and the way it turned out when we were done, we had no choice. And it was like, literally the consensus of the band was, was to the point where we, we knew when we wanted to make our seventh record, we already knew it was going to, we were going to call 
uh, Martin back. We're like, no, we have to do this again. It was just, just so organic and so much fun. And he has this, you know, old school Swedish, Europe, like you said, European um, background. So his, his, the way he grew up in his culture, he's so relaxed and so friendly and so open-minded. And man, it was just, it was such a treat to work with him every day. And he has this really cool accent and he has this really cool dog and bring the dog. Every, but the, the, the vibe in the room was just so relaxed and chill that, uh, it's almost like I want everybody to experience working with Martin um, at least once in their life, just to experience how he does how he does uh, music because it's 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 incredible. Yeah, that that whole Swedish thing is 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 amazing. Now, uh, of course, you, you mentioned Howard, and and he's worked with with friends of mine, uh, Seether and Bang Tango. Can't can't forget Bang Tango. Uh, do, do you see yourself like sort of like Def Leppard and Mutt Lang, where at some point you just go, okay, we've had enough. Or in five years, ten years, you go, hey, you know what? We made some really good Howard albums with Howard. Let's let's give him a call and let's see if the magic's still there. Like, how how do you sort of see the future? Because, like you said, he was there for all the other albums. You know, um, is he? We've been there, done that, or we'll see in ten years. No, I, I you know that's hard to say because you're right. We made some fantastic records with Howard. And he's a great producer. He knows what he's doing. I, I don't, I'm not, when I say that he had a method, I mean, I wasn't dogging on it. It was just, that's how he makes it. Um, but we, like I said, we made some fantastic music with him. Do you know what's in the future? I mean, does anybody know? You know, I don't know. Is there a possibility that we can work with Howard again? Sure. I mean, we're not going to, we still have, we're still friends with him. You know, we, uh, we, we still talk to him. I mean, you know, I follow him. We follow each other on Instagram. You know, it's like it's not. There's no bad blood or anything. He understands the the change we made, and 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 uh, yeah, we still talk. So, yeah, certainly there's a chance we could go back in five or ten years and say, Howard, let's make another record. Let's see. Let's let's see if we got it. Um, you know, or what have you do? What have you done lately that's different? And you know, let's uh, let's try what your new your new method. I mean, he he must. You know, he learns as he goes, as we do too, and like anybody. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think that, that the door is completely shut on Howard. I think we just, uh, for no, now, no, no, you we, got to that point. I mean, we said goodbye because we had to make a change and, and yeah, certainly Howard's still in the mix potentially. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know people, band, bands and producers get to a point sometimes where it's just good to, it doesn't mean anything uh, nefarious. It just means, Hey, we, 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 we're done. We, we need to move on. But, uh, Martin has certainly, and I guess for me, the word would be he's made he's made the sound very slick. And I like that. I like that nice uh, produced sound and stuff. Uh, just real quick, because we're I see we're at 30 minutes and, and that was our time. But uh, Neil uh, Peart, obviously, of Rush, uh, passed away earlier this month. He he was, um, of course, one of the greatest drummers. Uh, do you have any words on, on Neil? Were, were you a fan of Rush? I mean, I, I know it's sort of... Uh, you know, to say you're a Canadian drummer, you have to be a fan. But were you? What do you think of uh, of Neil? And any words on his passing? Okay, yeah. Well, so first off, I mean, when Rush was out, I was very very young. Um, so I, I mean, I I grew up listening to them on the radio, um, but I I I wasn't like a, a super fan of Rush. And you like you like you said like just because I'm Canadian doesn't mean I have to be a super fan. Now, that being said, because I wasn't a super fan, I didn't spend all my years like drummers that I know of that are older than me spent you know 
countless hours, you know, uh, practicing his his bills and his his songs that he uh, that they did. But I, I never did that. But I had a huge amount of respect for him, uh, only because not because he was Canadian, not because they were so popular, but he had a drumming style that I don't have. And it was a drumming style that I still to this day wish I had. And so uh, he's a math- he was a mathematical drummer. His time signatures um, were epic. And the way he would play um, his, his parts around these time signatures are, well, I mean, that's what I mean, epic. Like, it, there's not a lot of guys that do that and do it that well. And that's why I think he was so, he was noted as one of the best drummers around because he was able to do what most people can't. His brain worked at a, at a level that a lot of people don't. It functioned at such a high level. And I called him a mathematician. I'm not good at time signatures. I'm a four on the floor, um, four, four kind of rock guy straight, straight ahead pocket kind of drummer and and you know he was he was far advanced um than me so way beyond yeah, I, same respect what's that yeah i mean just way beyond and i was just going to say if you really want to appreciate neil is don't watch the rush stuff go to youtube and watch when he does a buddy rich tribute or he does some jazz stuff and you go oh my god the guy that does tom sawyer can do these j-. and then you go oh <laughs> yeah and that's when that's when sort of the genius gets revealed when you go because if you, you know you can take a lot of the uh, you know let's I'm not going to put it this way I don't think Lars Ulrich is 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 going to be doing Buddy Rich whereas you look at Neil do it and you go well no. that's pretty effing impressive good job you know he was a true he was a true drummer like drummer of drummers and it's funny you mentioned Buddy Rich because. One of the, I, like I said, I, because I was a little younger, I, I wasn't listening to them that much as, as far as Rush was concerned. So one of the times when I actually spent more time and got it, getting to know who Neil Peart was, was not from Rush. It was actually from a CD that my brother bought me when I was a kid. And the CD was called Burning for Buddy. And it was a bunch of drummers. I'm sure you know what it is. A bunch of drummers. Yeah, it's a tribute that album that the Neil's on. To, yeah. to play his songs, right? And so Neil was on that, and that's kind of where I actually spent more time learning about Neil Peart than than Russia, to be honest with you. And then after that was when I started to go, oh, okay, so this this drummer, this Rush, okay, now it's all coming together. And as I grew, you know, older every year, that then and all of a sudden, I became, you know, more of a rock drummer, and and you know, that's when it all started to come to to. to um, really understanding who Neil Peart was as a drummer, and that's when I started to go, "Wow, I like the Rush hits. I'm, I'm not, I don't listen to their stuff front to back, but their hits were magnificent as a band, and his parts were epic because they were perfect. They were so unique, and when you hear them, you know exactly who it is. There's no guessing ever, and you know who it is. So I have." Nothing but major, major, major respect for, for, for who he was um, as a person and for his drumming and what he did for the music music uh, community total. And then on top of that, to finish it off, um, when I found out about, I didn't know, I just found out like the day that he passed, what he had passed away from. And not to go too deep here, but it kind of touched home for me because I, I felt extre- even more sadness because... Um, a couple of years ago, my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor 
fortunately, she's here today, um, alive and well. And we were able to beat that. Um, and so when he didn't make it, uh, that I was, I, that I was literally in, in, uh, you know, in my house, uh, reading the article and just, uh, stick to my stomach about it because, uh, he didn't, you know, he wasn't able to make it. And, um, so it kind of touched home for me, uh, uh, the way he died. And so, um, I'm, I'm always, I think there's going to be now just because of this as well. I think there's going to be this weird, dark, um, thing with my, my thought process when I, when, when Neil Peart comes to mind now. And I think I'm always going to carry that now with me. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's something I'll never forget. And I, you know, he's now touched me in a way that, that, um, I, I can't really ex- express any, any more than that. So it, it's this weird feeling now that I didn't used to have, but now I have. So again, this, that Neil Pertman, that guy just, you know, kudos to that guy and, and may he rest in peace. Cause Absolutely. He, was a, he was a beast. He, he was. was a boss. And, and, uh, listen, I've got, I, I could ask you more questions, but I'm going to leave it at that. Cause I, I don't think we should go further than, We'll we'll leave it on that thought. But uh, first of all, my thought uh, uh, to your mom, uh, let's hope that she she keeps going for another 25, 50 years. And yeah, and and as far as far as Neil goes and his condition or or his what he died of, nobody knew. Um, You know, he didn't do interviews about it. They They didn't put out a press release about it. And some fans are upset that they didn't know. But I respect the privacy and I respect the fact that he wanted to do this just with his family, and uh, you know, may he rest in peace, like you said. And and uh, again, I- I'm so incredibly uh, glad that your mom uh, b- fought it and beat it. Uh, that that's that's great news, right? So it's fantastic. I, I don't have words to describe yeah, the excitement no. that my family has today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, g- good, good, absolutely. And uh, just real quick. Uh, the the new album "Say Nothing" is uh, January thirty first. The tour at the uh, Commodore Ballroom, the legendary Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver, January thirty first, running all the way to February twenty ninth. That's right, there is a twenty ninth this year in uh, Barrie at the at Mavericks, and you are here in Montreal on February twenty eighth, a Friday, which means you have no excuse to not go at the M Telus. Which uh, I don't know. Well, you've you've played it before. What a great venue, man. That, yeah. that venue sounds fucking fantastic. Um, so <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's a, I love that venue. When we, when we saw that it was uh, available and we could do it, we're like, just take it. Please get that venue. Get yeah, that venue. And, and uh, I'll, I'll be more than happy to come out and uh, check out the band and support the band. And, uh, Joey, thanks. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. Oh, it's, and no, you know what? It's my pleasure. I love, I love talking music, drumming, all this stuff. So thanks for uh, having me on your show. I, I super appreciate it. Absolutely. And, and we, we, we went down some paths that were uh, very different than the normal tell me about the album. <laughs> like we, we got into some deep stuff, which I, which I thought was great. So that, that is fantastic. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.